Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Stuttering Springboard. On this, this episode is called Life on a, a, a Delay. A mother's a perspective. Cecile Hendrickson. In 2023, John Hendrickson published Life on Delay, a book about his journey as a person who stutters. The book is getting national attention as a breakthrough book for all, all to read to learn about what it means to be a person who's, who stutters. John is also a, 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 a renowned journalist from the Atlantic, also known for his article about Joe Biden's I stutter. In this revealing podcast, John's mom, Seal Hendrickson, gives her a perspective and advice to parents of stutterers. Welcome to the Stuttering Springboard. My name is Brian Nolan, uh, the founder of the Nolan Stuttering Foundation. A foundation uh, that I started with my buddy, Dr. Joe Donaher, uh, who was in studio, uh, to help young people spring to the next level in life and not let stuttering be a ceiling uh, to that and bring awareness to, to this disorder. Um, I, am, I am proud to be in studio uh, today. It's our first in-studio podcast with Seal uh, Hendrickson and... Dr. Joe Donaher. Seal Hendrickson is the son of John Hendrickson, who is uh, quickly becoming the very popular author of the book Life on Delay. Uh, and this book is getting, uh, I would say, national, if not world, world round recognition. Seal is uh, retired um, a few years back after 45 years as a registered nurse. Her career spent an array of settings, uh, coronary, um, intensive care, working with children with developmental delays, uh, patient education and trauma, but the last 13 years as a school nurse. And uh, she moved back to a Philly later on in life, but was raised here. Uh, Seal, I want to welcome you as uh, not just a mother of John, but for the person you are and going to share today. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you bet. And then uh, Joe Donaher uh, and I have our two partners in crime. Uh, we are changing the world with respect to how people think about stuttering. He challenged me to go bigger. I challenged him to go bigger. And uh, we're, we're taking the Nolan Stuttering Foundation bigger. Um, this podcast for me um, is particularly emotional. I mean, many of them are. Uh, but this one, because uh, when I read this book, Life on Delay, uh, Making Peace with Your Stutter, well, lots of things. I've, I, I think I'm finally making peace at age 60. <laughs> making, not all the way there yet. Um, 
But I had experiences that were very similar to John's, um, both with my parents and siblings, etc. Um, so Seal, um, John's book has gotten incredible recognition. Um, how, how do you generally feel about being a family that is now in the, in the spotlight? That's a great question to start this particular podcast out with. Um, I feel proud of John and his courage in, in accepting his stutter and writing about it and sharing so many layers of what it is like for him to be a person who stutters and what the earlier years were like. Um, as a family, I like to think that it's brought us closer together because um, we're talking about something that we lived and continue to live, but somehow kind of just parked it somewhere. Uh, we didn't really know how to have the conversation about John Stutter, and we didn't, um, we didn't, um, I think we didn't think that much would change that this was, uh, you know, this was a, this was a disability, and and I don't think I personally never thought that John would stop stuttering. I thought that he might, as he gets older, manage things, manage the stutter in mm. terms of managing how he feels about being a person right. who stutters, not the stutter itself. I never mm. thought that that would completely go away. But to get circle back to point of your question, I think um, it opened up some stuff for us as a family that was tough to unpack, uh, but I also think that um, we have landed on our feet in a better way than maybe we thought we might. That's amazing um, to me. I think, you know. What, what do you think was the catalyst that took John from... Um, hiding it, not talking about it, not wanting to, to now being, in, in some respects, the public face of a person who stutters nationally. I, I mean, that is like, that is such a dichotomy in positions. Yes, yes. That's a great question too, Brian. Um, I think um, after John wrote that piece for The Atlantic about Joe Biden, I think the response he got from the stuttering community just that, just the starting unit was overwhelming to him. Uh, I think he didn't realize the the breadth of the stuttering community, and the, by and large, the emails he got from people uh, were just, you know, this is my story you wrote about, and and I feel exactly the way you do, and so I think that empowered him. I think that empowered him to um, continue to talk about it. So, and really, his, his first decision was writing this story. And he yes. probably knew that writing this story might open up the world. Yes, I wonder. That's a, uh, he, uh, in a meeting that they had with the Atlantic editors shortly after he started there, he suggested the idea. Uh, and he shared with me that people in the room said, Joe Biden has a stutter. You know, and John said, he does. And anybody who stutters can watch his uh, responses to his stutter to Joe right. Biden and how he adapts. Um, so um, I think um, I think that was 
that was kind of the uh, catalyst. It definitely was for to, for John to uh, feel more comfortable about it because the people who responded to his piece were cheering him on and saying thank you for this. And um, often, in my husband was a writer for the Washington Post for 25 years, and Paul used to talk about how you pour everything into these stories and do the best you can, and three days later, people wrap fish in the paper. Uh, <laughs> so I think, I think John was... So now it's digital, yes, so now it's, it's, digital. Now it stays a little longer. Yes. So I, I, I think John was, was, continues to be kind of amazed because he continues to hear from people, which is empowering him to... And keep at it. Yeah, I remember back at that time, uh, John had reconnected with me, and he called me and he said, "I'm going to write an article about Joe Biden's stuttering," and it was it was really weird at this time because my son was in high school playing football, and I was sitting at a football practice on the phone with John talking about stuttering watching my son, who is the same age as John, when I met John. Wow. Oh, wow. And I remember it's this weird thing, and John's talking to me about, you know, the, why won't the president disclose this, what's the matter, all of this stuff. And we had a long conversation, I remember. And then everyone's view of stuttering all of a sudden changed after that article came out. And yeah. then we had people making fun of stuttering. And for the first time, media outlets were saying, that's not right, you can't make fun of it. Yeah. And what's really interesting, when John went in to write that article, he kind of learned that the stuttering community was looking at Joe Biden to be this champion for people who stutter. Yes. We finally have a president who stutters, and you can do anything if you stutter, right? And that was kind of the thought. Why won't Joe Biden stutter and be this champion for people who stutter? And little did we know that the champion that was going to emerge from that time was going to be John yeah. and not uh, President isn't, Biden. Isn't that interesting? Right. And it really has happened where John has become this champion. And really what he's doing is he's talking openly about his stuttering and talking openly about the impact of his stuttering, which is more important when you're talking about stuttering. And you've graciously allowed the whole world kind of to see a little bit of a glimpse into yeah. your family and the role that stuttering played throughout that. Yes. Yes, and I think not only did the media and the public view stuttering differently, they they suddenly viewed Biden differently. Yeah, they yeah. did. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, whether or not you believe in his politics or not, people were saying he was senile when quite often it was because he was gaffing some words and not, yes. not doing it the right way. Yes. <clears throat> you know, John did it his way. This is this is what's intriguing not talking about stuttering his whole life, but now his, his job is a writer. So he found his outlet through his career. Uh, yes. I, could, I can relate in a very, very big way. I've used my consulting firm as a venue and um, a similar way to now communicate to the world more. So John did it his way. He did, he did. And um, I think he's proud of that. And I think, though, he also wants people to remember uh, that he has a lot of other uh, interest. And he doesn't want to be, um, um, what's the word I want? He doesn't want to be kind of shoehorned into yeah. that, uh, you know, oh, there's, there's a new movie about somebody with a disability. Get John Hendrickson to write about it. Yeah. So yeah. he wants to, he's proud of what he has done and the awakening that has happening for the stuttering community, and as we mentioned before we started our visit today, 
anybody with a disability. He's proud of that, but he also wants, I think, his professional colleagues to see that he has other gifts to bring well, I mean, to his work. Boy, I, uh, just a quick riff here, because as a kid, you, you think of yourself as, as a stutterer first. That literally defines you. It, it, it defines every interaction you have. You see the world through that way. And so now, now he's saying, but I want to be known for more. Yes. Uh, and so what we tell parents and kids is focus on, on what you do well. And so he's got this sort of mixed emotions. I want to share with the world, but know me as, as John, I do lots of things. Yes, What's yes. great about John is he is a great writer. And, and when you yeah. read his other articles, I mean, there's funny articles. You can read about beer. You can read about baseball. Mm-hmm. And then you can read about, a lot about politics right. as well. Yeah. But he, he, what he brought to this book was his skills as a writer and as a storyteller. And I think that's the magic of the book is that people who are in the stuttering community or are somehow connected to stuttering, they'll read most books about stuttering. Mm-hmm. What this book did is it brought the rest of the world in. It's a good story. It brought my mom in. It brought in other people who wouldn't typically read a book about stuttering to read this book and really learn about it. So that's, I think, the magic that he's such a good writer, and that's what made this book kind of appealing to everyone. Is there a, is there a part of the book, Seal, that you can point to that really, really stands out to you um, or s- something John wrote that surprised you? Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I was reading his book in the evening when we got, John brought my husband and his his brother, he uh, delivered it to Matt as well, um, the book in manuscript form. Mm-hmm. And I was reading it in manuscript form in the evening. When I got to parts about his uh, high school years. It was, it was very difficult for me to uh, have it confirmed how hard each day was for him in high school. I, you know, I kind of suspected it. I knew it. High school's rough. It, it is rough. And he went to an all-male Catholic high school. We, John, uh, his first, um, his early years from age three up until the end of eighth grade, was all at the same school, a Catholic school in Georgetown, Holy Trinity. It was like, it was like hanging out with cousins. He had, was so familiar with the people. Some of the kids in eighth grade he had met when he was three in nursery. Um, he had a comfort level. They knew he stuttered. Sure, there were times people made fun of it, but it, it was familiar, emotionally familiar. So then we pack up and leave Washington and move to Philadelphia. My husband was offered a teaching job at Penn, and John, he had cousins up here because I have six siblings that live up here, and they all have family members. Um, but uh, he applied to St. Joe's Prep and, and was accepted, and when we moved up here, he didn't know anybody in our neighborhood of Havertown, um, and you know, I mean, again, I knew that intellectually, and when I drove him to St. Joe's Prep the first day, I'll never, never forget dropping him off. I'm going to read a quote, and then I'm yes. going to, yeah, page, page 216 from UCL. I'll never forget watching you walk down that main walk, she said, but I think of so many risks you took. Do you look back and feel good about yourself, or are you sitting there thinking, you don't know what I didn't do, what I chose not to participate in? I thought for that moment, I told her, 
It was a little bit of both. Yeah. And I thought of you dropping off, and I thought of him, and I thought of my ninth grade. Holy cow, I went to a, a Catholic high school, a brand new high school from a public high school. Um, my mom didn't drop me off, she put me on the bus. <laughs> what was going through your mind as you bade him goodbye? Well, um, what was going through my mind thinking, boy, one day at a time for both of us. Right. One day at a time. I can see his thin frame and his conservative haircut at the time walking up the path. And his brother had gone to a prep school in uh, Maryland. And at that school, they had to wear khaki pants and a navy blue blazer, everybody. So I foolishly told John, well, that's what you should wear when you go to St. Joe's Prep. Unbeknownst to me, it was a much more creative vibe there. Kids had on plaid shirt jackets, mattress jackets, ties that didn't match. So here's John walking into this situation with all these boys not knowing a soul, dressed wrong <laughs> because of his misguided mother's inclination. And uh, I just, you know, I probably said a prayer thinking one day at a time, mm. just somebody stay with them. Mm. Um, in the book, you quote, um, my family didn't address things head on. What would have been the alternative with respect to dealing with John Stutter? And then, Joe, I'm going to ask you to comment also. So we didn't talk about stuttering. It wasn't talked about. If you could go back, what, what would you do differently? Uh, what would I do differently? I would like to talk about it. The family I came from didn't talk about it anything that popped up. I was grew up one of seven Irish Catholic families. I'm one of seven also no. Irish Catholic families. Yeah, we just, you know, we just, we, just uh, we didn't have anybody who stuttered, but there had to be bumps along the way that were not addressed. Uh, what would I do differently? I would like somebody to stop me in my tracks, either in my neighborhood or with the uh, therapist that John worked with before we met Joe and say, this is what you have to do. You, you know, if uh, here's a support group that could help John, and if he's not up for it, here's one for you, and and you're to go. You know, you're to next time I see you, Seal, I want to hear that you've called this place and you've had an appointment. You have an appointment because we didn't have any tools for how to even have the conversation. Mm. Uh, and and again, I guess because I, I'll speak for myself today, I viewed it as a chronic um, um, situation, a uh, disability, and uh, I'm thinking, well, how do we talk about this? What, 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 what light can be shed on, on John stuttering? Uh, it wasn't until John met Joe, and Joe said, you know, John, you've got to just, you're, you're working so hard to cover this up, you got to just tell people from the get-go if you're you know you're going to try to call a girl or talk to somebody and and you're 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 doing all these all this work he said that you're doing using so much work for you to try to hide this i think you should just get it out in the open mm -hmm. um and it to circle back that's what i think i needed somebody to say to me and i've said it in other forums i'm a nurse and I would have told any of my patients who were diabetic or had kidney disease, find a support group. I would have found it for them. 
I'm embarrassed that I couldn't bring that kind of decision-making into my own personal life for myself and for my son. Why didn't I think? Why didn't I think? Well, there wasn't much out there for that. So he was pointing to signs, I don't want to talk about it. Definitely. Like giving body language there. And so you said, well, if I, you probably thought if I, if I pay more attention to it and talk about it, it's going to make it even worse. I think so. Yeah, so Joe, Joe, help us out here. This is one of the key areas. Yeah, boy, there's so much. I love this. Thank you so much for allowing us to talk about this stuff. But so you just said um, about two sentences ago, you ended with, uh, you, and I have such a visual in my head, of sitting out front of St. Joe's Prep. There's that walkway in the doorway. John's walking in, and you just said, all I wanted was someone to stay with him. It's a powerful, powerful statement. And it takes me back to my own parenting journey. Um, my daughter, Erin, is 22 now. Four years ago, I drove 10 hours in the middle of the pandemic to drop her off in Indiana at Notre Dame. And they locked them in the, in the dorms for like two to three weeks. They ate in the dorms and, you know, she was on her own. And leaving her there, I was petrified. Right. You know, it's you don't know what to do. You're, you're scared. They're not allowed to interact with people. You, you move them in and then, OK, see you later. I'm driving home now 10 hours. And I can remember about two weeks in, there was a football game. And the only students that were the only people who were allowed in the Notre Dame football games during the pandemic were the students that had been tested on Thursday to show that they didn't have uh, COVID and they were allowed in the football games and they were spread out and all that kind of stuff. And I can remember during that football game, I was watching the TV for my daughter. And all I wanted to see was that she was sitting next to someone. I didn't care who it was. I didn't care anything else. I just didn't want to be watching this football game and in the stadium seeing my daughter by herself. Right. And it's the same. I feel that for my son at college. I feel that for my family. So for when you said it hit so hard when you said, I just want someone to stay with them. We know from the literature uh, on resiliency and resiliency is just how persistent you are. How can you stay with something? How do you keep going and not give up? And the research on, on resiliency shows that it takes one person. If one person's on your side, that can be enough. And, and Seal, you were that person, and you still are to John. It's throughout the entire book, no matter what he's doing, you're by his side. You said you wish you had the perfect answers. Everybody yeah. wishes that. And really, the best thing we can do is what you said, just be there for them. Yeah. We're not going to have answers. We have to listen. We have to be yeah. honest and open. But really, the best way or best advice to move forward is to do it openly. Yes, that's very so, wise. So wise. what does that sound like? I know how it, how it looks and feels, but what conversations might happen between a mother and a son um, after he comes home from the first or second day and had a hard time saying his name in science class and there were some giggles and he comes home and you see his head drop in shame and you like, do I say anything? Do I not say anything? What do I say? Well, I mean, the, the easiest thing, and as parents, we all want to do this and I will be 100% Honest, I've been guilty of this a million times. Um, like, we'll take that same example. My daughter's locked in a prison in Indiana in a dorm room, and we're saying, don't worry. They've got everything under control. It's going to open up. It's going to be fine. That was me minimizing the problem, right? And, and I should have been more honest. I should have either said, I can't imagine what that's like, or that must be scary, 
right? And, and I think when we're honest, that's the, the, the best tool we have because when we try to minimize it, like, oh, don't mm. worry, you're so smart. Those kids, they're just jealous of you. Like things like that, we, we take it away. Everything will be fine, honey. Right. And, and so it's okay to be honest. And John, I mean, John and I have had this conversation about that. And, um, you know, I, I might be direct and I might not be the biggest hold, hand holder, but I, I'm direct and I'm honest. And John's talked a lot about that, that too often we sugarcoat things or too often we give these messages that just aren't congruent with how life really is. Or as you said, we say words that help us feel better. Sure. Uh, because you want to say something. Uh, I recently listened to a podcast that John did after his book came out. The podcast is called Mile High Stash. And the, uh, the person who hosted uh, is Adam Perry, and he lives outside Denver. And Adam is a person who stutters, and he's heavily connected to the music community. And John, as we know, loves music. Uh, John said something in that interview that has stayed with me. Uh, he said that he thinks what helps is to ask somebody how they feel, not to say, uh, gee, that I'm sorry you're dealing with that, or that must have been hard for you. Don't make that assumption. Ask the person, what does that feel like for you? Yeah, that's a huge yeah. point. Because yeah. we feel we feel such shame, and we bottle the shame in, and, it, and we're not talking about how we feel. Uh, instead, yes. we're pretending everything's okay yeah. by not talking yes. and hiding. So let's replay that, 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 uh, that boy coming home from his first, second day science class, stuttered uh, on his name, he walks in, seal, you see him. Uh, oh, John, it looks like you had a rough day. Joe, what, what I, next? I wish I'd said that. Yeah, well, yeah, if he did that, um, I, I'll go back to the emotion piece. Sometimes the question, how do you feel? It's great for young teenage boys. We often don't model that. We don't often talk about, hey, you really must be scared today. That's great, isn't it? All but right. we don't do that. We don't model talking about emotions. So it's great to get to the emotional impact. I agree with John. One thing I might suggest is you take a risk on identifying the emotion. So you can say, that must have been scary. You know what's going to happen if they don't feel that way? They're going to tell you. Right. I wasn't scared. Oh, well, I wonder how you felt. Take the chance by modeling that it's okay to talk about I like emotions, that. right? I like that. You must really have been uh, nervous. No, I wasn't nervous. I felt mad. And what eventually will happen is it will become normalized to talk about your emotional reactions. And I think also, Joe, that there's probably some level of appreciation that you are saying out loud that you must have been yeah. a, a nervous or scared when... They're going around the room and everybody's introducing Now someone gets me now. Yes, Because we, yes. we who started to think no one gets us. Yes. And that my mm. mom's okay. Uh, I don't have to meet her needs. I think he often right. met my needs, you know, and I would ask the stupid question, how was your day? I mean, how many mothers say that to their teenagers? Uh, fine. Yeah. How's school? Fine. Um, and I think he often was looking, trying to comfort me. Yeah. Don't worry about me. I'm okay, but... Yeah. So, so it, it looked like in the book, you often tried to help John by ordering food for him yes. and, and uh, saving him because we want our kids to be happy. We don't want them to feel embarrassed. So we think if they stutter, they'll be embarrassed, so we're going to order for them. 
What's your thoughts around that now? Did you and John talk about now? And then Joe, this this is a pretty big topic. Yeah, that a lot of us deal a, with. A lot of stutterers will talk about that. When I've gone to the Friends, which is a organization that supports people stutter, when I've gone to their conventions, there's such so many commonalities that came up. One of them being that that their parents would order for them. I don't know if I ever actually asked John, do you want me to order for you? I think, you know, I intuited or I would do something like, you know, I think I'll have a cheeseburger. How's it, do you think you want a cheeseburger today, John? You know, knowing that that's what he wanted because I was trying to protect him from the glare of the wait staff, you know, giving him a funny look or him being on the spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I wouldn't have, uh, what I would advise now is ask the person who stutters. Ask them, do you want me to, you know, how do you want to handle it when it's your turn? To order? <laughs> well, that's and, a tough that one. is such a great piece of advice right there. And what I would say is, and ask them again. Well, because, right? because it's different say, every time. Yes. Well, the first time I, I can tell you, they're going to say, yeah, yeah, you can go ahead and order. But then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit there and shift and I'm going to feel like, why can't I order? Yeah. Everybody else going for me. So, so, Brian, I'll flip it to the other challenges. I hear this discussion we have all the time with families, right? Uh, the opposite is I'm not going to order for him. I'm going to make him order for himself. Now he's, he's petrified. Right. So, so I, I hear that, too. And the only way to know what the right answer is for that individual time is to do exactly what Seal said, which is talk about it. And pretty much every answer is talk about it and discuss That's it. That's why Joe's it's here. Going to be diff- <laughs> but, but it's going to be <laughs> different to navigate every time. This. <laughs> it's just going to be difficult, different every time. Yeah. So right. I love You're that right. you, you But we can't about. assume it the same right. all the time. You're right. As we're going through this journey of, you know, and then it, it's okay if you stutter during it. You know, what you always say, what's the worst thing that's going to happen if you stutter? Because um, we, we always project that. Um, I always say there's no life after stuttering. Like if there's a presentation... Like the world ends on the, yep. on that. There's no life after presentation. Hmm. It, it's crazy, just that, that thought. Joe, I remember when you told John that the next time he was in line at St. Joe's Prep, I think he actually told me about this. Because I would drive him in the beginning to the sessions with you, and then he got a car by his yep. junior year, yeah. and he drove himself. And I didn't even know if he even went. For all I know, he could have <laughs> gotten out of class. And, you know, I, you know I, I would do one of these generic things, you know, how was your session yep. with Joe today? Fine. But he did tell me that you had instructed him. The next time he wanted a specific thing, he was to, you know, talk, he was to uh, stay with it. When we talk about stuttering, it's so different and so individualized, and it's hard to know how any one person felt at any time. But what we do know is that fighting it and wrestling it and hiding from it and trying to pretend it's not there isn't productive. Right. And and the book, I mean, John's book, it's called Making Peace for a Reason. You don't make peace with something if you're not actively at war, okay, or or fighting with something. Because he wanted to be like everybody else at the prep. He wanted to banter at the lockers and buy his lunch. And yes, so you're right. That's a very good point. So it's hard to know any quick answer. Anytime we think we have a quick answer, we're probably wrong. But but so what what I'm hearing here and experiencing it in my own historical background is um, you, you can't let it slide for six months or a year and not talk about it. Because what I know is that every avoidance situation exacerbates it. Every time you avoid anything, and st- because you stutter. As, jo- as Joe says, we avoid things all, all the time. But I'm talking particularly when you don't talk 
and you know you want to. You don't order and you know you should. You, it becomes a, down, a downward spiral. The only way out is through it. And yes. that's, that's the hardship of having a parent watch their son or daughter go, go through this. Yes. I want to go to a different topic. You, um, you say in the book, or jo John said, that you cycled through many therapists, and then you found Joe. Mm -hmm. There's a, a chapter in the book called Joe. And uh, <clears throat> it's a great chapter. Oh, we're out of time. I'm Oops. sorry. The out of time just happened. It's a great chapter because he, he, he does treat stuttering therapy very different. Um, I'm just going to read a, a couple quotes and then ask you what was different. So why do you want to come to uh, therapy? He asked John. Uh, and so he stammers and, and such. Um, he says again, so, Seal, why do you want John to come to therapy? My mom looks over at me for an answer. Joe bounces a little yellow basketball against the table, as he's known to do. Well, it's not that I want him to. It's that we both think it's a good idea, John and I. John says he really doesn't want to be here. Um, anyway, it goes on. But then Joe says, OK, John, why are you here? And then you leave the room. Um, and this goes into a lot of who's the therapy for, when is therapy ready, when is a child ready. So Joe, you start that way because you always need to know context, what we're really trying to achieve by therapy, right? Can you, can you just talk a little bit about that in general and then particularly with John and where it went from there? Yeah, um, I can't separate therapy from relationships, right? To me, therapy is a relationship. So in order to decide how you're going to start a relationship or what you're going to do together, you, you kind of got to get to know each other, right? And you got to know what people want and what they don't want, and you play them out a little bit. Now, um, I, I'm very aggressive in this book in the beginning, and Seal still talks to me, so I couldn't have been that mean. But I'm different with different people depending on what I think, how, what approach I'm taking, how I'm doing things. But there's two, two kind of congruence in what I do, is there's support, and there's challenge. And, and sometimes folks need more support, like giving them um, information about stuttering or telling them or listening to them, having them voice things. And then there's times you challenge someone in therapy a little bit more with his try something new or, or maybe challenge a perspective, think a different way. Um, in the beginning, if, if we're not straightforward about what we want and what we're willing to do and what, what's available for us, then that relationship is going to be started without trust, without kind of uh, honesty, and not transparent. So right from the beginning, we need to know that. There's other, another really big problem. And the problem is that stuttering usually isn't the thing that's causing the problem. It's usually how people are reacting to the stuttering. It's whether the individual reacts to the stuttering by isolating, by hiding. I mean, one of the hardest things in the book, I think, to read is, is John in his room, hiding and retreating to the room totally. a little bit, right? So that's how he reacted at times. And there's reactions of other people that reinforce those beliefs, laughing at him, giving him um, what now has become famous, John Hendrickson, quote, the look, right? People know that. I've, I've not mentioned the look to a person who stutters who didn't get that, by the way. Like, it's a universal, right? So I think that very beginning, forging the relationship and thinking about how to move forward is so important. 
because so often the beginning of therapy has been, how do we stop the stuttering? And again, if we talk about stuttering as the problem and we teach ways to hide the stuttering, all we're doing is bringing in more anxiety, more fear, more guilt, right? That it isn't until you can let that stuttering out and be a little bit more open about it. You don't have to love it. You don't have to say this is the best thing, but you have to acknowledge the fact that you stutter. And the more you open up and let go of some of that fighting, the more peace you're going to have and the easier it's going to be. Yeah, I mean, so... The more you stutter, the less you're going to stutter going forward. I mean, with me, the more I talk, the more I don't talk, the more I'm going to stutter. I just need to talk, and I need to not focus on my stutter. I need to focus on my content. And and what happens to people who stutter is we're thinking about how it's going to sound. We're not thinking about the value of what we're saying. And only when you can really focus on the value and stop, stop getting so caught up in whether I can get that, that sound out, because how are people going to give me the look when I get that sound out? I've witnessed that many times in book events I've gone to uh, to support John and podcasts I've listened to that he's been on. When he um, is not thinking about the fact that he is talking and he's composing an answer in his head, his sentences are smoother. Yeah. I think it's when he, like with the restaurant scene, uh, when he's on the spot and the waitress is waiting for John to talk, it's almost a foregone conclusion that he's going to uh, stutter. Yeah. Whereas if he's, you know, just composing a impression of a of something on his mind, it's it's often smoother. Yeah. The when the time pressure, noticed, the time yes, pressure, the time pressure. pressure. The other thing, Joe, I noticed um, when I would go visit John up at Penn State. Uh, I'd, we, I'd go out with he and his friends, and um, when when he was just chatting with his friends, his his speech was much smoother than when it was just he and I speaking. And I thought, as I would often think driving home, he's got this muscle memory of when he's around his mom, he stutters, or with his family, with his family, because I would notice when he would come home for visits, and sometimes bring in. The, the person he was might have been dating at the time that I'm thinking, I wonder if she is sitting here at our dinner table thinking, boy, John is, you know, seems to be stuttering more often in this setting. And I think it's, you know, like all of us, you get to a certain a specific environment and you have a memory of how you looked and behaved in that environment. And it subconsciously comes back to sure. you. It's interesting, like there, you're equating, though, increased stuttering with more negativity. Right. Yes. So John came home. We'll ignore the part about bringing another person home for Liz's sake. We won't talk about that. Uh, Liz, it was Liz's wife, wife now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, think of this for a second, though. When you said he'd come home and he stuttered more with you, and, and as a parent, I would imagine that might be a little difficult to hear because I, I heard it in your voice and how you were talking about it. We could flip that around too and say that John was so comfortable at home and, and was so happy to be with you at home that he didn't use the tricks that he used at other times to limit the amount of stuttering he Mm. did. A lot of people who stutter, when they're doing things like word switching and hiding and all of that, if they give those up and just talk whatever they want to say, there's going to be some more stuttering in that very often. So a lot of times the, the outward sign of more stuttering is actually a positive because they're not hiding as much and they're just letting it out. So I often think hearing more stuttering is, is a good thing, not a bad thing. Interesting. So it's just your perspective. 
Yeah. See, see, that's I. I could have used a session with you <laughs> yeah, myself. Exactly. I, you know, well, I, I mean, called you up and said, yeah. "John's coming home, Joe. I need to talk to you." One of the things I I realized you have to do in this podcast now for I don't know, I don't know, thirteen, fourteen months, is that we need more parent therapy, oh, and, yeah. and and often who's who's the therapy for, and because uh, it is so being a father of, of two boys who stutter, um, I I probably should have had some some therapy fifteen years ago. Just how, I mean, the guilt you feel, did I pass this on? And, and then how could I help them? How can I fix it? Um, um, and uh, Support I, I, for yourself. Yeah, and I think there's so many parents that could use support and support groups and talk about it. And so the, the last 10 minutes of, of this podcast, I think is pretty impactful for parents listening about, about how to empathize with their feelings and talk about it often but on their terms. Yeah, I think the big point is talk about it often, but also not forcibly talking about right. it. Like, you don't want every conversation to be right. about stuttering, yeah, you know. Yeah. You don't want the kid to come and say, I just scored five points in the game tonight. That's great. Let's Did talk you about stutter stuttering. During the game? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let, let's talk kind of other things is just are just as important. But I think that being willing to have the conversation more than once, like bring it up, they might not feel like talking about it. But if you keep doing that, they're going to know eventually they can talk about it. And the, the more you talk about it, the better it is. The other thing I would really advise parents to do is, um, besides just making stuttering an acceptable topic to talk about, make it a neutral topic. Like there's not a positive or a negative to it. It's just something you talk about. And too often now, we recently had uh, the experience, and we're going to have it probably moving forward in our political world right now, where stuttering has been made fun of. Mm -hmm. So we, we had a recent, two weeks ago, we had a, a presidential candidate who again made fun of stuttering, and he's done it in the past. But in the past, people screamed and yelled. In the past, CNN commentators said, you can't make fun of stuttering and saying there's something cognitively wrong. That's not true. And that was four years ago when that fight happened. Well, two weeks ago, when the same candidate made fun of stuttering again, there was a markedly different reaction. This time, the crowd laughed. Mm -hmm. So to me, the hardest part of this is the, the candidate's going to say what he wants, but the, the crowd laughing, that really hits hard, right? And we need, not only do parents of kids who stutter need a class about stuttering, our entire world needs a class about stuttering and about being more open. That's right. And so I think how we react and how we should have these conversations is how we react to any difference, whether it's a verbal difference, whether it's physical or anything else. And, and the more tolerant we are of differences in general, the easier that's going to be for people who stutter. So, so conversations beginning with friends and family. So let's, let's go outside the nuclear family and um, into your uh, siblings and friends who noticed John stuttered. Um, did they ever talk about it? Did they ever ask about it? Was there ever a, any conversation about it? Not really. Yeah. Not really. They, uh, bless their heart, they saw John the person. Yeah. No, they never said anything to me. Uh, and I've, uh, I'm close to my six siblings. They could have, and, and, and we do talk about, now we talk about things and bring it up and ask each other how you feel about something that might be percolating or dealing with no nobody ever said mm. uh, you know I guess I they knew John was when we moved up here John was in therapy with Joe um, but even that nobody ever said how's that going or how you know nope no I never even and neighbors uh, nope yeah I've, I've done a lot of personal reflection 
upon this because my wife has nine siblings and I have six. And um, it was never talked about with them, which I think made it awkward for my sons. Because um, it's all, you, you often say, Joe, people react to your stutter the way you react to your stutter. So we, we're watching the reaction go back and forth. And often a person will finish a sentence for you because they think they're helping. Um, or, or they may lose eye contact because it's an awkward moment. And um, if I could go back and rewind, uh, I would have spent more time educating, um, particularly my wife's family that didn't have any stuttering in the family about what it is and what it means and how we feel. Um, I would have had at least a, a meeting of some sorts, or, which, which, by the way, I, I've done now. Um, and, and where, where do you hold your parent, your family meetings for that many people? Because it's a very large crowd. <laughs> well, so uh, being being the Irish family that we yeah. are, we like parties, and so uh, I I often take a time over a Guinness or a IPA in the corner with one of Agnes's sisters, yeah, nice. and and you know having it that way, and and it, it actually brings us closer, um, which is really really key. So I, I big big family meetings probably is uh, blown up, but, but it's just the informal discussion. And how have the reactions been? So uh, when you've talked to the siblings, any it's negative? It's so warm. It's so warm. I mean, you can't even believe it. We love Jack. I, I'm so glad you told me that. Now I'm going to listen. I'm going to give him eye contact, and then I'll watch him at the next uh, family party. And instead of being off in a corner, he's engaged, and uh, that feels terrific. Wow. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. Well, they, they welcome it. They welcome, they welcome the conversation. It. Yeah, yeah. It's been a lot of years of doing it the wrong way. Uh, I wanted so, to ask you something, Joe. Uh, do you ever have uh, a session with the parent of one of your clients? That, you know. Yeah, we, we don't really have regular clinical sessions with parents. But where we do see that, I mean, uh, certainly, like, if you go to a friend's organization, you'll have parent group meetings there and mm-hmm. talks. And um, at other types of uh, conferences, there'll be parent groups. But we don't. And Brian and I actually talking about this this morning. There's a new program out that I'm just starting to get aware of that's putting together kind of stuttering courses for parents. Oh, and I'm wow. excited to learn more about that. So Yeah, there are some initiatives that are exciting. Because huh. I'm trying to remember how often you and I had updates as John went through therapy. As I said in the beginning, I drove him. Um, I think in, there were a couple. Yep. Maybe I, we would have talked on the phone more in. than... Yeah. Yes. And then the other thing is um, I, I now rarely ever don't have the parent in the room. But during, I, during the session. During the session. Now, oh. John was different it was a while ago, too, but um, almost always I have everybody in the room. There's nothing secret that we need to do. Yeah, because you I want like the that. work, the work like in the that. room to be the same work at home. Yes. Right. I, I can't imagine in the last 10 to 15 years that I did sessions without wow. the parent. That's wow. huge to me. It is. Yeah. yeah. It is, it is. Did um, so, so you were a uh, school nurse for 13-some years. How did the schools address stuttering? What, how did they think about it? Um, and wh- what would you recommend for school systems these days, how to deal with kids who stutter? I was a school nurse at a uh, charter high school in the inner city in South Philadelphia for 13 years. Uh, I can remember one student who stuttered. Um, and he would wear his hair long and cover his right or left eye, I can't remember, with his hair and look down. He was ashamed of his stutter. 
when he would come in to see me for uh, supposedly a physical ailment, um, I would talk to him about his stutter, and I would tell him about John, who was at that time a similar age, and he, this young man who was just a, a soft, wonderful kid didn't contribute much to the conversation. He didn't know what to say. I don't think he was getting any speech therapy at all. Um, I'm not even sure they had a speech therapist come to the school. I think maybe they worked with him. But when I would talk to the counselors, we had two counselors, they sh told me sh this shocking information, Brian and Joe. They, in their master's program, they had maybe one class, if not even an entire class, on how to approach or how to work with a, a, a person who stuttered as the counselor, as the counselor. They weren't, I didn't have that conversation, obviously, with the speech and language pathologist, but the counselors say, they told me, you know, nobody gives us any tips. So that kind of floored yeah. me. That floored so me. Where, where, are all, where are all the kids who stutter? We all, we all felt like we were the only one who stuttered. Yeah. Like I've, and, and it's this... I mean, you hear this over and over again. Right. Now, adults who stutter, it's a different story. But majority of children who stutter, still, it's more likely that you don't know someone else who stutters than you know someone else who stutters. That right. was John's for, situation. For children who stutter, it's yeah. more likely that you're not in therapy. So you really you feel isolated. Right. And, I mean, we have great groups like Friends, the NSA. There's a lot of different say. There's a lot of groups that bring kids who stutter together. And, really, you don't have to do much else. <laughs> Bring a bunch of kids to stutter together, and it's going to be successful, right? Yeah. Um, but still the problem is the vast majority of kids who start to stutter do so alone. And the vast majority of families who are wrestling with stuttering are doing so alone. So that's the first thing. We, we, we have to get better access to services, and we have to improve the services yes. that are available out there. Or sometimes speech-language pathology does more harm than good, and that's what we have to watch for. So uh, are some kids hiding it so, so schools don't even know that, that they do stutter? Sure, sure. Yeah. It's not that different than the stories you've heard. Yeah. That they might just be a very <clears throat> quiet student yeah. Yeah. who and does their work but doesn't participate verbally in class. They're just a good kid. And maybe well, you're lucky and have a school nurse like Seal who, who I recognize that and identifies those signs. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the signs of stuttering aren't clear. Kids who are avoiding, who are keeping to themselves, kids do that for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times the teachers just have no idea at all of what's happening. Wow. Well, let's end on a topic of, of grit. You said uh, when you saw John speak on TV, you said my heart fills up with pride at your grit. You told them that in, in the book. Can you describe that grit? Yes. Um, I can describe it this way. Um, the thing that astonished me, still astonishes me about John, and I think it's palpable in his book, is the absence of bitterness, which is not to say that he did not get down and struggled. And well, we know he got depressed. We know he was full of despair. But he didn't become a bitter person. I mean, I think some when somebody shoulders a disability, they can, they could end up being angry and bitter. You know, why me? Um, so John's grace, uh, for for me, is right is what I mean by his his grit. He just he uh, he didn't avoid. No, no, clearly he did avoid things. But also, what I witnessed was a kid with a 
very active social life. I rented more tuxedos for him to go to proms. I probably should have just a handsome young man. one, you know, from the, but he was, he was always out and about, and there was always something he was going to, and he was involved in extracurricular activities in high school and grade school. He did talent shows, and um, so he, he didn't let his stutter define him or isolate him, mm. and that's the grit that astonishes me. I don't know if I would have have that courage. I don't know if I was uh, facing a disability, if I would just say, you know, I'm, I'm going to do the best I can anyway. You know, I, I just finished reading um, The Obstacle is, is Away by Ryan Holiday, and then I read this book, and I turned to the opening uh, page, and there's a quote from Marcus Aurelius, uh, which is from that book, and I love it. The impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. And that's the grit that, that we learn to go through. And um, what I know is uh, what is hard makes me better. And I think that's the position John has taken in doing this. Now, um, you can help me get John on this podcast, can't you? I can. Yeah, John, if, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> you're coming. I, I've been on a long list of people uh, here, but now, so I got his mom. So now I'm in. No, he will. Yeah. He will do it. He, uh, I think, uh, I think he's proud to advance uh, a conversation, to participate in a conversation which erases any listener's awareness of anybody dealing with a disability, no matter yeah. what the disability is. It just makes you be less quick to react and more likely to respond. Is there one final sentence you want to say to parents, the, the 35 or 40-year-old mom who's just seeing her 6-year-old, 7-year-old son and is in, is in despair? Uh, I would say to uh, s- seek support. for you If you're very likely doing something for your child, uh, investigate different approaches to whatever the disability is, as Joe has shared, and we now know uh, fluency shaping therapy is not the way to go with a person who stutters, but also take good care of yourself and, and, and don't just do what I did, which was read some brochures. Mm. Keep, keep doing a deep dive until you find people that you can talk to. Um, the Friends Convention and the Friends Support Group is wonderful. They have they have uh, virtual supports uh, that go on once a month, and there's people out there, and um, you, you need it. You may not think you need it, but you need it. You need hearing you need hearing common stories from other people that are very likely feeling what you're feeling. <laughs> Thank you, Seal. That's Thank you. Awesome. My mom's not here, but I felt like you sat in, in her place, and thank I really you. appreciate that. Thank um, you Joe, for inviting me. Joe, thank you. Uh, until then, uh, we wish your family uh, to uh, continue to be bold and brave and change the world. Thank, thank you so you. much, you guys. Thank, thank you, Joe. No one stuttering foundations for NSF's primary purpose is to bring young people who stutter together and help them become the best versions of themselves. 
We do this through programming design to help them share and navigate the unique communication and psychological challenge they experience. NSF helps prepare young people to take the next step in their lives, whether it's high school, college, or, or, or your, your career. For ideas and, and contributions to the podcast, contact us at info at nolansf.org.